I'd like to welcome you to the Norris Cotton Cancer Center Grand Rounds for those of you here and those of you watching remotely. It is indeed my pleasure to introduce today's speaker, Dr. Eric Henderson. Um, as um, many of you know, treating um, sarcomas and other primary malignancies of the bones presents and soft tissues present several challenges. And one of them is trying to spare the limbs and uh, create prosthetics uh, in certain different places of the body in order to spare limbs and the patients that suffer from these diseases. And I'm happy to tell you that we have such an expert among us here today. And don't let his youth trick you on that one, but he's, um, uh, he's absolutely an expert in studying the, um, the outcomes in 2,000 patients uh, in a multi-center uh, retrospective study of uh, all the mechanisms that were carried out um, and identified the failures of these bone prostheses and try to figure out what the gold standard would be. And I think guided by this type of study, he continues, Eric continues to work with these multi-center retrospective studies to find the best way to treat patients. But in addition, he's now absolutely committed to uh, finding the technology and partnering with engineering and other uh, and members of uh, Norris Cotton from different disciplines to try and find absolutely the best technologies to treat these patients so that they get the best care and um, for their um, sarcomas and their soft tissue um, bone diseases. So he uh, received his BA and MD in Florida. Uh, he did a residency in orthopedic surgery in University of South Florida where he was affiliated uh, with the Moffitt Cancer Center. Uh, he has published 40 papers from his work uh, on, on, on these um, salvage of, um, of, of, of limbs in patients with uh, bone uh, cancer. And he did a residency, in or a fellowship in orthopedic surgery at Mass General at Harvard Medical School. He spent uh, also a couple of, um, of months or part of a year at the Instituto Ortopedico in Rizzoli. Uh, and he's going to tell us a little bit about that as well. So welcome, uh, Eric. Thank you for having me. Um, I hope if this mic is not working appropriately, please let me know. I'm not used to such uh, luxuries. Um, so uh, yes, uh, I have no disclosures uh, personally. Uh, here are my, my funding sources currently. Um, so I got the, the invitation to speak here about uh, three, four months ago. And I... Um, I, I was going to give you all just a humdrum, here's my research uh, grand rounds, and let that be it. And then I had this conversation on November 13th, and I was, um, I was headed to a fundraiser for, uh, the, the Dartmouth swim team was actually putting on a fundraiser for sarcoma, which is just, I mean, sarcomas are so rare, I mean, who, who does that? So I thought that was so great. And I was talking to someone here on the staff that we all know and love, and uh, she said, Eric, what are you going to talk about? And I said, I'm going to talk about what I do. And she says, no offense, but you're an orthopedic surgeon. You don't do cancer. And uh, it was right then and there that I realized that if someone on our own staff doesn't know what I do, that I need to just take this opportunity to, to give a little bit of, um, of a, maybe a tutorial on, on the things that I have to offer patients. Um, I realized that in the, in the scope of human evolution, the orthopedic surgeons are, are known to rank somewhere kind of in, in this range. Um, I think the orthopedic oncologists are a little bit more on the, a, a right shift there, but um, anyway, it's the stereotype that we're given. So the agenda today is, I, the, the, the first part of this, I'm going to talk about what I've been up to, because that's what I was asked to do. Tell us what you've been up to for five years, because it was, it was five years ago, I think, on uh, Saturday that I walked through the doors at DHMC. And... Um, and then the second part will be a little bit more of a, of a uh, stereotypical grand rounds. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the research I've been doing with Thayer. Um, so, uh, as mentioned in the uh, wonderful introduction, um, this is Bologna, Italy. And uh, on a hill uh, to the left here um, uh, sits the Rizzoli Institute, which is in a, a converted uh, uh, 15th, 15th century monastery. And... Uh, the Rizzoli is the birthplace of orthopedic oncology, is the birthplace of limb salvage surgery uh, for bone and soft tissue sarcomas. 
And I was fortunate enough to be invited to uh, spend some time with them after my fellowship in Boston. And I was all anxious to start my, my, my job here. And my uh, then chairman, Dr. Mirza, said, you know, Eric, just take your time. There's plenty of time to work. And so I went off and spent um, uh, three months there. And basically my days were, uh, I'd spend my mornings in the OR, and then my afternoons I would spend in their, in their library, which literally has a, a library uh, collection worth tens of millions of dollars because they have books just sitting on the shelves that are, that are hundreds of years old. Um, but it was truly a, a very humbling experience, and I, I really enjoyed it. Um, so getting back to um, what I've been up to for the past five years, which again was the charge for today. Um, so sarcoma is truly as multidisciplinary a, uh, a malady as you can have. And so um, the, the people you see up here are all providers that you know, and I, I interact with at least half of these people on a weekly basis. And I interact with everyone on here on probably a monthly basis. So it's truly a disease that touches uh, numerous uh, corners of the medical spectrum. So in terms of the timeline for sarcoma becoming a real live cog, uh, that's Pinocchio. I didn't know if people get the reference. but um, So I arrived here again about five years ago, and there was no uh, sarcoma tumor board. There was really there's no sarcoma cog. And so that became my, my first mission. And so uh, we had some growing pains initially. We got through those. And then on October 15th, we had our first tumor board. And then um, Dr. Angelis joined and, and started to, to make this a respectable uh, sarcoma unit. And then we had Dr. Linos join, and his, his sarcoma pathology expertise was, was greatly appreciated. Dr. Wong joined, uh, then Dr. Baker, and then Dr. Gatan. Dr. Gatan is a sarcoma traumatologist. You say, well, what does she have to offer? She actually um, is trained in bone transport, which I'll, I will show a slide later on. Uh, which to me is, is the, um, you know, the Mercedes-Benz, if you will, of, of limb salvage options. So, um, and then in 2017, I started a, a Manchester and Concord clinic, and also uh, actually today our new uh, sarcoma newsletter is going out. Now, what was the, what was the motivation for the, the clinic and for the, um, the newsletter? So I got this email, uh, this was forwarded to me back around April, and I, for, for about two years I've been talking to um, my leadership about potentially doing a clinic in the South, and it, it was stalled and it wasn't going anywhere, but I, I wasn't really pushing it too much. And then I got this email from an orthopedic surgeon within our own network who said, we don't have an orthopedic oncologist in, in our network. And so I called up my business manager right away and said, Nick, I want a clinic in Manchester in June. I don't care how it happens. I want it to start in June, and so it did. Um, and now I see this gentleman uh, once a month and gets to shake his hand, and he knows I'm here. But this is how I felt um, <laughs> when, I, when this first happened. And so again, um, you know, so now once a month, and, and hopefully soon, maybe more than once a month, and, and maybe Keene, maybe Nashua, uh, uh, Nicole Armstrong, who's the nurse for the sarcoma program, um, she and I drive down there. Here's the, the, uh, the header of the new newsletter. And our newsletter um, is going to be going out to people essentially in this distribution. Uh, so I'm, I'm uh, cautiously optimistic that this is going to really help uh, our referral basis. As you can see, this is our growth over time. Uh, I don't have a great way to measure this other than these are tumor board presentations, and so we have um, all presentations in unique for each year, and you can see the trend is generally up. Uh, 2017 isn't over yet, so I'm, I think we're going to you know, get those numbers up a little bit more. And again, I'm hoping with the newsletter, Southern Clinics, that we're going to continue to expand. Um, in terms of my practice, uh, I don't really discriminate at all based on age or really anything else. Um, my youngest patient to date has been five months of age, had a large forearm mass, and I've got several patients who've been over 100. In terms of the diseases I treat, uh, primary bone uh, tumors, primary soft tissue tumors, uh, which I share with Dr. Angelis and Dr. Wong, and uh, then metastatic bone disease. And if you take nothing away from today, I want to focus on the metastatic bone disease because I feel like this is where communication with outside providers is the weakest in terms of what 
this program has to offer patients. So I was just going to go through a few uh, cases, um, kind of show uh, the, the variety of, of um, what an orthopedic oncologist does. Um, so starting with, this was a 57-year-old uh, gentleman, been diagnosed with erectile uh, carcinoma 10 years before, had had radiation, presented with this new mass for those who don't see MRIs on a regular basis. He had this mass at the tip of his sacrum. It uh, was biopsy proven to be a high-grade osteosarcoma, uh, thought to be radiation-induced. So he ended up going on to have a sacrectomy. Um, and that's a multidisciplinary case. I mean, that's uh, uh, myself working with, uh, in his case, vascular surgery, general surgery, um, and urology as well. So if John Singer and I go into the room together, it's going to be a big day. Um, so here, this is a 13-year-old girl presented with this uh, distal femoral mass. You can see it's in, uh, infiltrating into the uh, uh, femoral canal. And so this was a par osteosarcoma. And so she gets a distal femoral replacement because um, of the high uh, local recurrence rate and potential later on for uh, distant disease if not treated thoroughly. Um, this was a 30-year-old woman with a, with a uh, diagnosis of Olea's disease, meaning she has multiple enchondromas throughout her bones, high propensity to develop a chondrosarcoma. She did. She had this mass, which you see here, but also extended uh, far up and down her humerus. Uh, you can see how large the soft tissue mass was, very much uh, a T2 bright, very water-based, consistent with a chondrosarcoma. So she got an intercalary allograft, uh, was able to spare both her elbow joint and her shoulder joint, and so this is all allograft. Another case, uh, non-malignant. This was a 25-year-old, uh, very active. She's a cheerleader. She uh, is a power lifter, and she presented uh, with this mass of the femur. You can see much more uh, interesting looking on MRI scan. Turned out, uh, due to the expert work of Dr. Linos, uh, an ABC, aneurysmal bone cyst, solid variant. And so because she didn't need a resection of the entire bone, she got a hemicortical allograft where we just let, try to cut this out like a piece in a puzzle, stick it in, and then over time, you can see this is a year later, she has healed it in. And I could take the instrumentation out tomorrow, but she doesn't want it. She wants to keep it, so that's fine. But she's back to lifting and doing really well. 81-year-old uh, uh, gentleman, uh, retired attorney, and um, so he presents with uh, leg pain in this mass you can see right here. There's a, a radiological signal there consistent with cartilage. And on the MRI scan, very T2 bright again, very bright on bone scan. And uh, so he has a grade 2 chondrosarcoma, and he gets a distal femoral replacement. And he's done quite well. He's about three years out now. A uh, 16-year-old girl presented with a, uh, a pathological fracture. Uh, biopsy-proven Ewing sarcoma. She was temporized in this device. You see on our, our trauma patients uh, who have uh, uh, long bone trauma uh, but aren't ready for surgery yet. Um, so this enabled her to heal the fracture without actually having inter any intervention on the tumor. And then she ended up with a uh, proximal femoral replacement. Um, this is a more recent case. This is the one that pertains to Dr. Gatan, who uh, does bone transport. There's this 18-year-old gentleman uh, presented earlier this spring. Uh, you can see something's going on in his uh, tibia right here, bone scan, MRI, biopsy-proven Ewing sarcoma. So because his uh, both joints are intact and there was bone on either side, um, he's a candidate for a bone transport um, uh, procedure. And so essentially I went in, took out the tumor, and then Dr. Gatan came in, she put in this, uh, this is all uh, polymethylmethacrylate cement with a plate holding it together. He was not supposed to walk on this, but he's 18, so he didn't care, so he kept going. Um, but then after he was done with chemo, uh, Dr. Gatan uh, transformed him over to a, a Taylor spatial frame. Uh, this technology is called distraction osteogenesis, and basically you make a, a cut in the bone, um, in his case down here at the bottom, move that piece slowly up the, up the leg, one millimeter a day, and the, the, the gap fills in with uh, fracture callus, just like he'd broken his bone. And then once, he's, once it's gone all the way to the top, then you let him consolidate for about nine months or so, and then he should have a, a regular tibia, which, again, to me, this is, this is the best way to go. Um, 
53-year-old woman presented, uh, this was uh, late last spring. Uh, she'd been having pain for over a year. She's actually from outside the country. Uh, the surgeons there were offering her an external hemipelvectomy, basically take the leg off, take the pelvis with it. Uh, but she didn't want that. And so she came and um, talked to us. I thought we could spare her limb. So I worked with engineers at the Stanmore Company, uh, which I think is the best uh, orthopedic oncology implant company in the world. And we came up with this. And so she went to surgery with Dr. Singh and I, and uh, uh, we took out nearly half her pelvis. Margins were clear, she's free of disease, and then she has this device. Now, full disclosure, she did have a partial femoral nerve palsy after surgery, but that's coming back. And so uh, she's, she's actually doing well. Um, and last, uh, last primary case, um, this is a 14-year-old presented last spring with a large shoulder mass. Uh, Ewing sarcoma on biopsy. Um, so he, uh, he got chemotherapy, went to surgery, and I resected the tumor. And then John Bell and I uh, put in an allograft prosthetic composite, uh, reconstructed his rotator cuff, and, and he's actually got reasonable function now and uh, is just completing chemotherapy, which brings me to this. Part of the reason why I really love living up here is the fact that the communities are small. So when he uh, went for his last chemotherapy, um, which is just ongoing right now, you can see this is just, uh, this was last week, um, the entire town turned out, and his, his entire school turned out to cheer him on. So that's something you don't see in other places. So in terms of metastatic disease, now again, if you don't take, you can, you can fall asleep after this, I won't be offended, but for those of you who, who, who treat patients with potential METs, this is where I really want you to, to listen, because this is an, an area where I think that we could do better. So when I, this was a call that I got about five years ago. Um, outside provider called me up, said, I've got this woman uh, who's got a hip fracture. She's got terrible metastatic disease, just awful. And I don't think there's anything you can do for her, but I just want to, to check. And so I'm just calling. We're going to make her comfortable and basically you know, put her out to pasture. So I was expecting just horrible disease. And then I get this, and she's got a hip fracture, and she's got a little lesion over here. So, I mean, this is like a, an easy nine trauma call. And so um, basically took her to the OR. She got a long-stemmed uh, hip replacement on the left. She got a nail on the right. And she lived another year and a half after this. And, um, and she walked. Uh, she, she walked with a cane, but she walked, and she was comfortable. So Dempsey Springfield, who's the most talented person, I think, to date in, in my field, uh, used to like to say, never plan on your patients dying because they will live to disappoint you. And I feel like that's the, that's the problem with, with treating metastatic disease of bone. And people are living longer because of the work that our scientists are doing. Um, 41 or 47 year old with uh, metastatic renal cell, this is a pretty simple one, he gets a nail. Another patient with renal cell carcinoma but has a fracture a little bit higher up, a nail's probably not gonna be the right thing. So they get a, a plate and screw with cement. Here's another patient with metastatic renal cell. Now look at this timeline. So um, some of my referring docs have, a, have a, a tendency to kind of try and make my life more challenging. So this would have been an easy case. This would have been a little bit harder, but they didn't call me until it looked like that. And so with an isolated renal cell lesion, you want to resect it based on the guidelines because there is a small, uh, debatable, but small uh, survival benefit. So he got an intercalary prosthesis. Um, patient with metastatic salivary cancer, 78 years old, couldn't use his humerus. He gets bicondylar plating. He lived for over a year with this and did really well. Uh, similar patient, myeloma, this is a recent case. Um, got a long uh, plate going up the back of the humerus. Uh, is doing well. And this is a woman, 45-year-old um, woman, uh, who had this rod placed three years earlier. She never reconstituted her bone. Uh, she went on to fail the nail. And uh, so she got a proximal femoral replacement. And she did pretty well with that. Uh, another patient with isolated renal cell metastasis in the mid-shaft of the femur. Uh, so he gets an intercalary device. And then this is an 89-year-old gentleman with metastatic renal cell carcinoma. So you know that I'm a masochist. Um, he couldn't walk. He, uh, uh, he was in excruciating pain, both sitting and trying to stand. and. Uh, 
and the reason why I say the mask is, is, is anyone's ever been in the OR when you operate on renal cell, it can bleed in bib biblical proportions. It, it can be, you know, truly life-threatening. But luckily, I think I saw him. I've got Dr. Fourhour up there in the corner who comes to my rescue each time, and I send them to him, and he, he tamponades the, the lesion and then sends them to me. And we take him to surgery, and we do this, give him a hip replacement, reinforce it with some rebar, um, basically like construction, and then he went on to be comfortable until he succumbed to his, his disease about nine months later. Um, this is another woman. This woman is actually the poster child for palliative care here at uh, Norris Cotton. She is literally, you know, um, I think in the inset of the cover of the, um, of the bulletin. And she uh, is now four and a half years out from this. I just saw her back last week. And she's been ambulatory essentially since surgery. She had, you can see she had a huge lesion up here. We packed that with cement. We reinforced it. She got a nail on the other side, and she's done really well. So that's just kind of a, a, a quick shot of uh, cases. Um, in terms of, so back to my charge, in terms of what I've been up to, um, my research basically falls into three buckets. Um, limb salvage surgical outcomes, which I've been doing for years. Uh, the MSTS registry, which is, uh, I've been trying to do for years and has only recently gained some traction. And then the, uh, fluorescence-guided surgery, which is really uh, probably the most exciting thing that I'm doing. So the, the papers referenced before go back just a few years. During my um, uh, residency, I was single for the most part, so I had a lot of time on my hands. So I ended up compiling the largest uh, limb salvage database in history, essentially. And we ended up putting out this paper. And then when I first got here, we put out this paper, which was similar in scope, uh, but for expandable prostheses for kids. Um, and then so during my time here at DHMC, uh, we were able to combine the two and then um, turn this into a classification system for limb salvage failures, which has now been adopted uh, by ISOLs, which probably no one has ever heard of. But internationally, this is the, uh, the kind of the governing body for people who do what I do. And, uh, and has worked out quite well so far. Um, that data set um, that I still have right there um, has yielded um, a few more papers. And so in, we've been very careful only to try and turn out really quality work out of this. But we just published this year the largest series of proximal femoral replacements in history that had, was the first ever to have multivariate analysis of, of the um, various surgical techniques that we do, trying to come up with some, some real answers. And so this was, um, of, of all the papers I've done while I've been here, uh, this is probably the most, uh, most significant. So, uh, but at the end of the day, uh, this is just retrospective data, and I realize that. And so about four years ago, I started engaging people around the country who are in um, my society. So the MSTS, ISOLS is the international one, MSTS is here for North America. And so I started talking to folks about forming a registry, and it, it really didn't go anywhere, it didn't go anywhere. And then about two years ago, we had a president who was actually interested in this, and so it started to go someplace. And so Ben Miller, who's at University of Iowa, who's about a couple years uh, past me in training, uh, he and I um, kind of joined forces, and we ended up uh, creating this um, uh, work group, which has now gone through a few iterations, and the, the, the direction of this has taken many different uh, changes. But at the end of the day, we now have a, a real uh, group of pilot sites. And you can see these places in general are no slouches. And uh, in the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons now is going to provide the superstructure for this. And actually, after talking to Bill Dalton last week, I think we may try and align our data capture with Orion, which I think would end up providing some, some other opportunities. Um, so, so that's more like it. Um, now this brings me to the work I've been doing um, with Brian Pogue and Kim Samko and the, the folks at Thayer and, uh, and Keith Paulson. And um, basically, in my mind, this is some of the most exciting work I've, uh, that I'm doing. Um, so just to bring part one of this, which again was sort of an adjunct just because I wanted to talk a little bit about um, what the sarcoma program has to offer patients. But so I really believe DHMC has a really uh, substantial and robust uh, capability to care for these patients now. Uh, the, the fact we have a bone transport surgeon puts us on par with uh, other cancer centers that are probably only half a dozen in the country. I think that Memorial is the only one that I know of on the East Coast to, to offer uh, bone transport. Um, 
We have great research going on. We've got southern clinics, maybe more planned. And for metastatic disease, please call me. And the, and the earlier you call me, the, the, the longer I'm going to live because uh, it uh, keeps my blood pressure down, keeps my pulse down. Um, so transition to fluorescence-guided surgery. Um, this uh, is, a, is an area of research. Uh, these are, again, these are my funding sources, uh, no industry support. Uh, I will be discussing ABY, which is under investigation, partially owned by Dartmouth. Um, so this is an area of research which I think is going to be the future for surgery. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about why this is important. Uh, we'll talk a bit about um, the history of fluorescence in medicine um, and talk about why sarcoma is a unique uh, model for uh, changing this technology. And we'll talk about some of the exploratory work uh, that, that I've been doing uh, with Dr. Samco, with Dr. Pogue, and then uh, we'll wrap this up. Um, so in terms of why uh, we need to improve guidance in surgery. Uh, ideally, the operating room is a, is a safe place where we're doing uh, things reproducibly, effectively, and, um, and no one is harmed. When I talk to my residents about uh, being a good surgeon, um, I think there's effective surgery and there's safe surgery, and they can be combined. In terms of effective surgery, you know, I like to think about the Navy SEALs where they have a mission, they get in, they get out, and one of, the, one of the best surgeons I trained with, if, if a carpal tunnel release took more than seven minutes, he started getting a little bit cranky. And he would say, your first goal when you get in the OR is to get the hell out. And uh, so he kind of fell more into the effective surgery category. In terms of safe surgery, you know, you want to, you want to go in, you want to be delicate to the, uh, to the structures, you don't want to uh, deviate from the path, and you want to be kind to the wildlife and not litter. Um, <laughs> In terms of the foundation of safe surgery for us really is our knowledge of anatomy. And um, this knowledge really hasn't changed that much in, in decades. The, the, the books are prettier and, and more color, but the, the, the foundation really hasn't changed too much. I think that uh, to the, to the non-surgeon, when, when people hear about the occurrence of an injury, uh, it, sounds, it, it sounds absurd, you know, but when you look and actually see the critical structures are mapped out for you, uh, the, the anatomy looks a little bit scarier because none of these things you he see here highlighted are things that you want to cut. Sometimes we do and we have to, but you really try not to. And so as Dr. Coe says in, in orthopedics that uh, danger takes no holidays. Um, so the tools that a surgeon has in order to, to navigate their way around the body are really these. Um, kind of in, in decreasing order of importance. Um, so our knowledge of anatomy, um, our imaging, uh, which I always have up in the room, what we see, um, tactile cues, what we feel. Uh, sometimes the Doppler is, is, is necessary. And a nerve stimulator is, is, a, is a device that's not really worth much, but it is, it is a tool, so mention it. Um, I keep hearing the phrase that everyone is a snowflake. Uh, and I think in some situations that actually is true, and I think that is true in these cases right here. So anatomy tends to have some variability from person to person. Not a lot, um, but trauma and uh, anatomic anomalies uh, and then tumors, prior surgery, and radiation I've highlighted because that's, that's our world, right? That's, that's really the world of cancer, repeat operations, history of radiation, and, and, um, and tumors. And you can see right here, Here's a soft tissue sarcoma I took out over the summer. You know, that thing is, is distorting all the anatomy. So things aren't where, if you, if you expect things to be where they are normally, you're going to be disappointed. So, and also, you know, pictures like this are misleading. Things are not color-coded. You know, so here, here are the, uh, uh, the, the main vascular and nerve structures uh, laid out in the leg. Here you can see them. They don't look like this. And so especially after radiation, you know, the, the ability to discriminate uh, tissues based on appearance really goes down. Uh, CT navigation is one thing which, which began about 25 years ago and has matured slowly with time and is a great idea. And basically you take a, a CAT scan and you feed that into a computer and then you can figure out where you are from uh, where your, your landmarks are. Now, this, uh, you know, this has some problems, though because it only works with inelastic tissues, and only works if those inelastic tissues maintain their alignment with each other. Otherwise, you start running into problems. Now, 
elastic tissue can be problematic, right? Because it moves around and it's, it's, hard, to, uh, it's hard to navigate. So the problem with CT navigation is that um, elastic tissue changes um, orientation with, uh, with positioning, and as, as, as soon as you make an incision, it begins to change in its orientation to each other. So um, what we need is, is we need real-time dynamic feedback uh, from the body as to where tissues are, and so you can, you can see things before they see you. Now, in terms of the, the use of fluorescence in medicine, um, Fluorescence was first described back in the, back in the 1500s. Um, there's this uh, Nara tree, and uh, essentially um, this uh, gentleman described that the sap um, could be, uh, would, would illuminate under certain uh, circumstances. Um, fluorescence wasn't really described, though, more scientifically until Stokes came along, and he basically said that it's the change in a wavelength of, of light um, as, it, as it decreases uh, from one frequency to another as the signal is returned in, in electrons. This is actually before they knew about electrons, but as the electron relaxes. And so what's actually going on? One photon comes in, stimulates an electron to jump up its valence state, and then as it relaxes, it, it emits this. This is fluorescence emission. So that's going to be a lower um, uh, frequency, higher wavelength, uh, because that's lower energy than the initial one. And here you can see a whole bunch of fluorophores mapped out. So these run the gamut along the spectrum of light and in terms of their intensity. And you can see that fluorescein, which you've probably heard of, uh, which is commonly used in medicine, is right up here. It's, it's in the visible spectrum and also is very, very, uh, very, very bright. Uh, so it was an ideal uh, first choice for a fluorophore. Now, in terms of the evolution of fluorescence in medicine, uh, it was first described Applebaum used ICG, uh, endocyanine green, uh, for identifying vessels in the retina. And it is still used uh, for that purpose. Um, fluorescein uh, was first used to remove gliomas uh, back in 1948. Uh, but in modern, more modern times, um, the, uh, the real uh, uh, seminal event was the use of uh, 5-ALA uh, for the use of, for off-label use for gliomas, uh, which led to a demonstrative um, uh, improvement in uh, disease-free survival. This was back in 1999. Now there, uh, so in order to get the, the, the fluorophore on the tumor or on whatever the target tissue is, you've gotta, you've gotta aim it somehow. And there's a few different ways to do that. Uh, so indocyanine green and fluorescein are both uh, very basic uh, vascular perfusion probes. You can inject them into the bloodstream, and they can, they can uh, visualize uh, the, the vasculature. Um, metabolic probes, like 5-ALA, um, they start as a precursor, then they're cleaved or processed, and then they become the thing uh, which uh, then uh, fluoresces. And then what I'll be talking about mostly today are molecular-targeted fluorophores. So again, vascular perfusion probes, uh, here you see fluorescein, here's ICG, this is ICG being used to identify a sentinel lymph node. Uh, up here you see fluorescein uh, being used to identify retinal trauma. Um, here again, 5-ALA uh, injected. The 5-ALA is actually uh, converted to protoporphyrin 9, and this uh, is used to visualize uh, gliomas. And um, uh, tumor paint is a, uh, or BLZ-100, is a commercial product which has been introduced. Uh, it's produced by Blaze Bio, uh, Bioscience in Seattle. It binds an XNA2, and it has. Uh, it was the first into phase one uh, trials, and, and has a variety of uses here. Um, uh, hasn't uh, really been explored uh, too much in sarcoma. I think that they, they had a trial up and then it got pulled for reasons I'm not really sure about. Um, but why do these current fluorescence guide surgery? methods not really work for sarcoma. And the reason that comes is the fact that everything we've talked about so far, and also applications we haven't talked about, like in urology and in ENT surgery, uh, ear, nose, and throat, um, they rely on direct uh, visualization of the tumor. So the tumor fluoresces, you take it out. Um, this, however, is not helpful 
uh, for uh, tumors that require a quote-unquote radical or wide local excision, because in those cases, you never want to see the tumor, because if I do that, then Dr. Linos tells me I've, I've screwed up, and I've got to go back and do more surgery. So here you see uh, glioma over here, and then this is, this is in surgery, and so you can see that you're visualizing the glioma, but here is a soft tissue sarcoma invested in one of the uh, quadriceps muscles, and then you can see how you want to take that out in that you want to have a nice cuff of muscle all around that so that you know that you quote-unquote got it all. You have negative margins. Now, uh, fluorescence has been used uh, for sarcoma, uh, but in the conventional sense in that they were using surface-based fluorescence. Uh, this is a study uh, out of Duke, and um, two of my colleagues are, are authors on this. And essentially what they did is they introduced um, uh, sarcomas into a rodent model, and then they resected them. And the blue lines are uh, negative margin R0 resections, and this is uh, disease, this is recurrence-free survival. And then the red ones uh, were positive margins, and then the black ones are where they had positive margins, went back, they put a camera into the wound, they identified areas where there was fluorescence uh, using uh, these two uh, probes, and then they resected with the residual disease they could see. And you can see that they made a, a huge difference from a positive margin surgery. So this is, you know, this is a positive, this is an improvement over what we do now. Um, however, I would rather have the fluorescence guide me as to my wide local excision and tell me how far away I am from the tumor, if possible. Um, so now we'll, we'll talk a little bit about sarcoma as a model for developing what, what we are calling subsurface or indirect fluorescence guide surgery. So just for those who don't know, for, you know, what is a sarcoma? Well, when this happens, around day 15, when you start to get gastrulation and the, the embryo is dividing into uh, three uh, germ tissue layers, uh, the middle layer, the mesoderm, which forms your muscle, your cartilage, your bone, your peripheral nervous system, if this ever turns into a cancer, those are generally uh, called sarcomas. And the vast majority of, of cancers uh, are carcinomas, and then there's uh, a little bit more complexity to it than that, or a lot more complexity. But um, So that's what a sarcoma is. And then in terms of how you treat sarcomas, um, sarcomas are less than 1% of all cancers in the U.S. and in, in, in the world. And so when, when drug companies are looking to develop new uh, products, uh, they don't think of sarcoma uh, at the top of the line for uh, being the, the most uh, uh, revenue-driving product. And so um, in general, uh, sarcoma treatments are, are well behind uh, other cancers, and so there aren't really any curative, non-surgical, uh, or any great curative non-surgical treatments. So cure usually uh, depends, in some part, on a curative surgery, which means a negative margin uh, surgery. Now, no one's ever really shown what a true, truly negative margin, you know, what the what the the uh, thickness of that is. Um, there's some literature saying up to five centimeters, um, but in general, as a as a principle, you don't want to see the tumor. Um, when you're operating on it. And in the, in the positive margin rate, um, this is out of a large paper out of, out of Anderson, um, is not trivial. Uh, about uh, four years ago, uh, Dr. Mirza, um, who he knows uh, with the uh, Center for Surgical Innovation, they have a monthly research meeting, and he said, Eric, I want you to come and present. And I said, well, what do you want me to present? He said, I don't know. He said, just come and talk about sarcoma surgery and how you think CSI could help. And so I kind of came up in my mind of, of what would be the optimal way to conduct surgery. And so I, you know, I said, you know, we've got CT uh, guidance, and, and that we know how to use that, and so that would be great. And then what if we had a, a muscle-targeting uh, fluorophore? Um, and we can see that it's muscle, but, you know, just to give um, some more tissue identification. And then what if we had uh, a fat-identifying fluorophore? And then beyond that, you know, the vessels are pretty easy because we've got ICG, we've got fluorescein, so we already know how to identify vessels. And then what if we had a nerve-targeting fluorophore, which I went to the SPIE meeting last January. I met uh, Dr. Summer Gibbs, who's an uh, associate professor out at Oregon. She's a former Dr. Pogue um, postdoc. And she's actually developed a nerve-targeting fluorophore that we're – I have a slide about that at the end, but we're actually looking at that now. And I think that's very exciting. And then, um, so this is, a, this is a leiomyosarcoma, so what if we had a leiomyosarcoma uh, targeting fluorophore? 
then we would, we would be able to identify all the tissues that are really relevant to the surgery and, um, and go in there and perhaps you know, be a little bit faster, be a little bit more thorough. And so what you're really talking about is, is being able to see the tumor uh, you know, through the tissues without actually having to see it. Um, so it's, it sounds like a great idea, but clearly no one's really done this in, in the, it's because there's a lot of unknowns. And so, you know, if you've got a tumor, um, you know, does the fluorophore bind to it? And then if the fluorophore binds to it, does the signal actually get out, uh, out of the surrounding tissues? And then, you know, how much fluorophore is actually taken up by the surrounding tissues, and does that uh, obfuscate your, uh, your ability to see the actual tumor, like you see right here? Um, so if the goal is this, then I, you know, sat down and kind of wrote down uh, what I thought were a, a, some checkboxes in terms of the questions that we needed to answer. Um, and I don't need to read them to you. You can see them right here. But that's uh, what we're going to uh, go over uh, right now. So in terms of um, indirect or subsurface uh, fluorescence-guided surgery, um, this is... Uh, Kind of, this is our, our method and our um, questions that we ask in terms of getting uh, from here to there. And so we look to see, um, you know, is there a sarcoma binding fluorophore out there? Now, luckily, uh, Keith Paulson and his group have been working on um, ABY029 for a while. And they've actually shown, well, Dr. Pogue's group has shown that uh, smaller molecules actually target the periphery of tumors better. And the periphery is really what we're interested in, right? Because we don't really care so much about the center, but we want to know where the where the margin of the tumor is. So ABY029 is an alpha body. It's just a uh, fraction of, of an antibody. It's linked to IR dye 800, which is a near-infrared fluorophore. And um, luckily, it just so happens that about 60% of soft tissue sarcomas are EGFR positive, or, or uh, fairly heavily EGFR positive. So we began looking at ABY029 binding uh, in rodent models uh, using human uh, sarcoma xenografts, and we currently have six lines, uh, five which are heavily EGFR positive in the lab. And we found that actually it, it binds quite well. So the next question is, well, how do we image this in surgery? There's a bunch of imagers out there. You know, which, which one are we uh, going to, uh, to bet on? And so um, Dr. D'Souza, who uh, now uh, is in Boston, um, she did a very detailed study of all these different uh, commercially available imagers, and she uh, came to the conclusion that the Perkin-Elmer Solaris uh, was the best. Now, unfortunately, it was also the most expensive. Um, luckily, Dr. Pogue knows them, and so they sold, it, uh, sold one to us at a, at a very reduced rate. Um, so... Going into this project, I knew that we were going to have to do a lot of dissections. And I, I, don't, I don't necessarily love mice, but I don't have anything against them either. And so I was looking for a way to not have to essentially uh, kill a bunch of rodents. And so um, this led us to, uh, and, and fortunately, unbeknownst to me at the time, Dr. Pogue had actually done a whole lot of work on this very area. And so I started looking at the literature and found papers by him and just said, OK, hey, Brian, how are we going to do this? Um, but, um, you know, so we, uh, we looked to create uh, essentially human tissue simulating phantoms that we could then uh, uh, perform measurements on and, and perform phantom surgery on. And so these are some of the um, uh, uh, issues that you face when creating uh, tissue phantoms. And um, you need a matrix agent, uh, which is usually gelatin. You need a scattering agent. And you need an absorption agent. And uh, these are generally uh, lipid and blood-based uh, agents. And so you can see the, the paper here uh, by Dr. Pogue. Um, so intralipid is a, a very reliable um, uh, scatter agent. Uh, blood is a very reliable absorption agent. And so this is how we proceeded. And we created these various uh, phantoms in these wells and then uh, looked to find, uh, compared those to normal uh, biological tissue uh, uh, optical properties and found that essentially uh, this combination of intralipid and blood up here, uh, you see replicated fat quite well. And down here, you can see that this uh, was our, our recipe for muscle. And so we proceeded uh, from then on. 
And um, the way that we created these phantoms is essentially we had a, a tumor in there, which we could inoculate with various concentrations of ABY029. And then we had the background, which we could also inoculate with various concentrations of ABY029. So here's a phantom. <clears throat> these are about, uh, you know, about the size of a, of, a, of a healthy piece of flan. And they kind of look like that, too. And what you're not seeing is that somewhere in there, um, you know, hidden usually by Jason Gunn, who's the lab manager, um, is a ABY029-laden um, uh, phantom tumor. And so that, that became our, our model. So now we need to look at um, the penetration of human tissues using near-infrared uh, fluorescence. And we're looking for depths of up to uh, two centimeters. And so um, Alicia D'Souza actually came up with this model. And so um, we had uh, base, uh, just like the, the phantoms you saw, and then we had these inclusions. And then the depth um, uh, was, uh, it was set on an on a, uh, incline. And then we had this wedge, uh, which essentially um, blocked uh, on in, uh, increasing depths. Uh, and these wedges uh, uh, simulated uh, fat or muscle. And you can see here we had various uh, wedges, various concentrations of the, of the different ingredients. And then we, uh, we measured the ability for the, the machines to uh, detect the, the inclusion body uh, using uh, the Lycor Odyssey and the Lycor Pearl. And you can see here that uh, with these various concentrations, uh, you can see reliably um, up to about three centimeters of depth. And then over here with, uh, with uh, um, more uh, absorption scatter uh, potential, a little, bit, uh, a little bit less, a little bit less reliable. Uh, but the, our goal of two centimeters was realized. And so this was, this was all good news. Um, and then, so um, looking at the, uh, the penetration, um, so that was just one, uh, one cycle with, with one phantom. We wanted to see how the tumor size and the fluorophore concentration uh, within the, the tumor inclusion affect the, uh, the depth of detection. So we went back to the same model. We used these uh, various models where you see different diameters of the inclusion body. And then uh, we uh, basically repeated the, the same experiment. And we found that um, inclusion size, just as we expected, correlated positively to signal intensity uh, and, and plotted out quite nicely. Now we want to actually start getting to the point where the rubber meets the road and see if, um, if, if I, actually being me, I, I think this summer I probably dissected out about 200 of these phantoms. Could I dissect out with, with negative margins a phantom tumor using only fluorescent guidance? So here we go back to that, uh, that flan-based uh, uh, phantom. And using the Perkinelmer Solaris, which, which Dr. D'Souza's paper uh, showed to be the best uh, imaging machine. Um, and I, for full disclosure, I photoshopped this. This is really what this looks like in the lab, but um, I didn't have a good picture, uh, and so I, I did photoshop this. Um, but so this is, um, sorry, wrong button. This is what I would see when just the white light is turned on. This is what I would see when the white light plus the, the fluorescence is turned on. And so with the higher concentration phantoms, you could just see this right through the tissue right away. There was, there was no guessing about it. It was, it was really easy. With the lower concentration phantoms, it was a bit harder, uh, but we could take very detailed measurements from the surface, and this allowed, generally allowed me to, uh, to find it. And um, you can see... Uh, this is what we ended up with. So my goal was, as I was told, that the, the phantoms were 2.2 centimeters by 2.2 centimeters by you know, cubed. And um, so I would start with this, this large phantom and, and dissect it down to something that was 2.2 plus 1 on all sides, um, so 4.2 around. And that was my goal. And you can see here, this is what we ended up with. And, you know, this is, this is pretty neat, right? So there's... we. With, with absolutely no guidance other than the fluorescence, able to get down to negative margins essentially every time uh, with all three concentrations. And so then we would look at the thickness of the margins and see you know, how well I did in terms of centering the tumor within the, uh, the matrix matter. 
Uh, and so you can see that uh, these are the three concentrations we did, and uh, all three were successful. So the conclusions uh, from this part were that, uh, and these were ideal circumstances. This was no uh, ABY in the background. Um, but under these ideal circumstances, this method seemed to work and enabled me to, to enhance my surgical accuracy uh, through fluorescence guidance. Um, but further work was going to be needed uh, to figure out exactly what signal corresponds to what margin thicknesses. So we also looked at ABY kinetics because we were starting to look towards this phase zero trial that we now have going on, and we wanted to know uh, what would be the optimal dosing time. And so we looked at various tumors, Ewing sarcoma can be soft tissue, can be bone. We did have a Ewing sarcoma model. We had synovial sarcoma, which is uh, very, tends to be very, very EGFR positive. Um, we looked at epithelial, uh, sorry, epithelioid sarcoma, uh, leiomyosarcoma, and a fibrosarcoma model. And when you look at them all in aggregate, um, the uh, concentration in tissues uh, tends to, to really peak around uh, the eight hour, uh, uh, in the four to eight hour range, and tends to really uh, go down in the serum and starts to go down in the other uh, soft tissue. So that's really what we wanted to see. Um, so the, con so the, the, the conclusion of this was is that for, for human dosing, uh, dosing uh, four to eight hours before the actual dissection on the tumor would probably be ideal. Uh, then looked at uh, ABY uh, tumor to background ratio. So this is getting to the, that uh, part about um, is the background going to uh, complicate the visualization of the actual tumor. And so here you can see uh, what we found. And uh, so at one hour, um, there was fairly similar uh, signal in the fascia, the fat, the muscle, very low in the nerve uh, compared to this leiomyosarcoma xenograft. However, at eight hours, you can see that there is a big difference because the leiomyosarcoma continued to receive contrast over that time, continued to bind, and the fascia, nerve, fat, and muscle began to clear it. Uh, here you can see um, the concentration over time, and this, uh, this is the eight hour, the blue, um, normalized to muscle, uh, and then compared to IRDI 700, which is a non-targeted agent. And again, you can see that 48 hours appears to be the sweet spot for dosing. And our average here, from this period to, to the normal tissues, is on average about uh, three and a half to one. Now, is that good enough? So that was a, a question that we started to uh, answer at this point. So we looked at um, the effect of increasing the background uh, uh, dye concentration, 404 concentration, and to see does that change uh, my ability to dissect out from flan this uh, uh, tumor. And in point of fact, um, a two to one ratio, you can see that the spread um, got wider, which you kind of expect. Um, so here's infinite. This is, this is uh, uh, theoretically the easiest going to, uh, to be hard. And I will say, these, it was harder to find these tumors uh, within the phantom, um, but it was doable. And so we never had uh, positive margins, even with a two-to-one ratio. Um, so anyway, two-to-one ratio appears to be sufficient for, uh, for tumor detection in, in negative margin surgery in this phantom model. So then, um, and I'm, we'll, we'll wrap this up, uh, we wanted to look to see uh, how we would do if we took all the data that we had so far, uh, so the thickness to signal uh, data, and see how would, it, how would it work if we operate on these with uh, instruments alone. And um, so essentially, uh, we did, there were two parts to this. Uh, the first part was uh, doing these very controlled dissections, taking off uh, very uh, measured amounts of the phantom, and then measuring the, uh, the resulting fluorescence you get from these uh, various uh, dissections. And we did this. Uh, taking the, uh, the phantom off the top, and also uh, coning in the, the phantom from the sides. And uh, this is uh, the spread that we got, and we saw essentially a nice uh, increase in signal as the, as the phantom was, was pared down. Uh, so then we took this data and did some tumor dissections, um, some phantom dissections, 
essentially just using the guidance from the, the fluorescence imager. And what we found was is that it was, uh, sorry, it was pretty good, uh, but never, it wasn't uh, ever really quite right on, except for maybe, you know, uh, here and here. And so the conclusion from this was is that our ability to predict, uh, you know, true tissue margin thickness from fluorescence alone right now is, is not adequate really for, for performing true surgery. Um, so I just want to give you a, an update on our phase zero trial. Uh, this is being run concurrently with uh, neurosurgery, and ENT is about to start one as well. Um, so the goal of this is we're doing the microdosing of, of ABY 029. It's given about two hours before incision. Uh, we take the patient back, begin surgery, and then usually the, the tumor comes out around four hours after dosing. And then um, I deliver the tumor to pathology, um, or usually uh, Jason Gunn and Dr. Samco are there waiting. Um, we go over the specimen with uh, path the pathology team, and then they bread loaf it. You can see it's sectioned. Uh, here's, this is one from last week. And then they do a low-resolution scan, identify the high and low, res uh, low fluorescence areas, and then uh, take a sample from each of these and then do a high-resolution scan right there. And then we send it off to the research pathology lab where they do EGFR testing, and we're still waiting for uh, the, the uh, correlation between ABY concentration and EGFR concentration. But we suspect that it's going to be pretty good. Um, and it was kind of in summary, what we've seen so far is that uh, if you look at the, uh, we've got signal-to-noise ratio and contrast, and I'll, I'll kind of stick to contrast since that's what we've been doing. But again, what I care about the most is what's going on in the tumor rim, and our contrast ratio to the normal tissues, to muscle and fat right now, appears to be about 4.25 to 1. And uh, again, going back to our prior uh, kind of instruments alone uh, dissection, 2 to 1 seem to be enough to have some accurate dissection um, uh, for negative margin surgery. And so 4.25 to 1 is, is pretty encouraging. And again, this is at a microdose level. We don't know what's going to happen for our next patient. We're actually going to dose escalate. And uh, we'll see what happens then, but I'm hopeful uh, that, that that ratio will continue to improve. And so basically, results are encouraging. Um, now, just as a cautionary tale, again, the information you get back is only as good as the information you put in. And so there's been a lot of stories like this on the news about people just following their GPS blindly. And, uh, you know, truly this is not going to be the goal uh, for this research. Uh, but in conclusion, uh, seeing through two centimeters of human tissue appears to be possible. Um, there is uh, detectable, uh, or the de detectable near-infrared fluorescence varies predictably with tumor size. Um, the uh, uh, ratio uh, for ABY um, appears to be uh, best after four hours of administration. And um, ABY 029 does appear to be a, a, a very good marker for EGFR-positive sarcomas, um, but we do need a better model for expected uh, tumor fluorescence. And next steps, uh, we're going to complete the phase zero trial, hopefully within the next uh, 6 to 12 months. Um, we're looking at uh, adding, I've got a K23 application in that's going to look at uh, implementing uh, MRI and CT navigation with fluorescence. Uh, we're going to develop a, a more sophisticated Monte Carlo model uh, for margin estimation. And we're going to start looking at, um, at other tissues. And this, this is that nerve labeling agent that Dr. Gibbs has at, at Oregon. Um, it's quite impressive, as you can see right there. And I think that this will really be uh, a step in the right direction. And, you know, I, um, uh, I think Dr. Richard Carl is here, uh, some of our former chairman of uh, surgery where I train in, in uh, med school. He and I were talking about this the other, the other night. I, I fully believe that whether it's 30 years from now or 100 years from now, that robots will be doing surgery and humans probably won't. I mean, I, I think that the, the tissue identification technology that we're developing right now is really going to make it so that robots can do these things better than we can, maybe with some human oversight. But, you know, if, if, a, if a robot or a team of robots can assemble an entire car in about 17 hours, if you add in the technology that Watson and, and you know, Watson-like uh, computers are going to add, 
you know, doing a femoral nail, which you can see here, is quite simple. I think could be you know, reduced to two to four minutes without the, the potential morbidity and mortality you know, from, from uh, training humans to do it, uh, especially Neanderthals like, uh, like orthopedic surgeons. So I'd like to thank all the people who are responsible for all this work, and I'd like to say thank you very much. Any questions? I know that I, I used up pretty much all the time, so I apologize. Combining the ALA with the body? Um, the uh, for uh, for for gliomas maybe not probably not for sarcomas. Um, we could use them together, but combining them would help because um, ALA you need five I think five ALAs to make four four nine. So the synthesis would happen. Yeah, no, I mean, but just using them together. Yeah. Yeah. So that's actually being considered for the global. Rick. Great presentation. Um, can the side effects of the Abbey of the 29, like down the road, like when we were looking at ALA and maybe doing that, I know you think people like can go outside because they can get sun exposure for like three days after the procedure or something, which is a big down for doing that, like in breast cancer. But how about with the ABS 29? Are there any downsides to using the administration of that? Not, not that we know of. I mean, there were, there were no toxicities uh, demonstrated in the, for the FDA rodent testing. Um, so none that we know of. All right. Thank you.